0: Again, back to your spiritual practices. Mm -hmm. For people who make, let's say, a regular practice of meditating, doing a silent prayer meditation for 10 minutes a day, you do that for six weeks, it'll change your life. We do have to practice allowing ourselves to be in places where we have to do the rigorous, hard, not complicated, hard work of simply closing your eyes in a relaxed posture, seated comfortably, and As Laird points out, I'm just going to simply begin to breathe, and Laird would recommend that we choose a prayer word. Sure. For some, it's, Lord Jesus, have mercy. I realize that's not a word, but, you know, a small phrase. And you're going to breathe. We have an exercise called a six breath per minute exercise. What you're doing by breathing only six times a minute is you are asking your attentional mechanism in the front right part of your frontal cortex of your brain to do the work of staying with your breath in this rhythm. Using the prayer word helps us focus our attention on this. So if I'm practicing this for 60 seconds, I get the experience of having my body be attuned and relaxed. I'm still alert. The second thing that happens is I become much more able to recognize that I've been distracted and bring my attention back to where I am. What I pay attention to, I remember, and what I remember becomes my anticipated future. And if that's what I'm actually doing, it means even as I anticipate doing the laundry, I'm going to start to see that doing the laundry is going to be an opportunity for me to drop for 10, 30 seconds into simply just doing meditation. Wow. It turns everything on its head such that it is now not a stress-inducing thing. It becomes the opportunity for me to know that I'm going to be at peace, walking in the land of the living before the face of God.
1: Basically, what is happening is you are, you have to be very calm, you sit still in a certain place, Uh, usually they have you breathe a certain way, you breathe slowly. And then with Zen meditation, they have these little techniques that you use where you, where you want to get past thinking, so that you're not thinking, you're not noticing your thoughts. So your mind's sort of in neutral, and you're not really thinking, you're not, you're not, out of it you know you know where you are and everything but you're not thinking and when you're in that state your mind is very very open it's very open to anything that wants to come in Um, now I felt that I was doing something spiritual and I thought that I was um, you know many times I felt very peaceful when I did this so I felt that I was getting peace from it and that it was you know doing something good for me um i felt that i would be kind of connected to the universe around me when i was meditating
2: luther's response later on in life is this yet all these seemingly holy actions of devotion which the wit and wisdom are nothing else but works of the flesh of course that's really a d- direct quote from colossians chapter 2 at the end of the of the end of the chapter all manner of sure. religion where people uh, where people serve god without his word and, com- and command is simply idolatry and the more holy and spiritual such a religion seems, the more hurtful and venomous it is. For it leads people away from the faith of Christ and makes them rely and depend upon their own strength, works, and righteousness.
3: Yeah, if I may interject briefly, I, I yeah. think that the way I understand Luther, when he says, if you're doing anything like devotionally uh, or as a matter of discipline without the word and command of God, I think what he's meaning is. If you're doing something that is not explicitly and directly commanded in scripture, then, right. then what you are doing, you can call it something, but it is not an exercise in godliness. You That's, know? Right. And, That's right. And that matters. And then, uh, of course, he's driving at you know, this actually pulls people away from faith in Christ, uh, which is a, right. a huge issue. You know, and it actually places their trust and confidence elsewhere.
4: Welcome to Thoroughly Equipped. A podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings, books, conferences, Bible studies, etc., to scripture. Our focus is 2 Timothy 3:16-17 that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I am your host Melba Toast. May this episode bless you and bring glory to God. Hello ladies, and welcome back to another episode of Thoroughly Equipped. Thank you so much for joining me, and if you are new, welcome. For those of you who are new and have just jumped into this series, we have been looking at Jenny Allen's ministry if from which comes the very popular women's ministry resources, the IF Gathering Conference, the IF Lead Conference, and the IF Equipped Study Guides. And at this point, you're probably saying, uh, what does that have to do with analytical tools, Dr. Kurt Thompson, and behavioral neuroscience? Well, we are at this point in the analysis of the IF Ministry Um, At a point where we're looking at how IF brings in speakers who integrate analytical tools with Christianity and scripture to help make disciples. Jenny Allen herself integrates psychological tools for the, quote, renewing of our minds, end quote, in her book titled Get Out of Your Head, A Study in Philippians, urging its readers to incorporate positive psychological techniques to help stop the downward thought spiral. If you're interested in my critique of that Bible study, you can check out Season 1, Episode 13, 14, and 15. So, it's no surprise to me to see Jenny Allen have two psychiatrists speak somewhat regularly at her IF Gathering and IF Lead conferences. We are taking the time to look in-depth at one of these speakers, Dr. Kurt Thompson, a speaker whom Miss Allen claims is a mentor of hers. She is quoted on Thompson's own website, stating, Dr. Kurt Thompson has profoundly impacted my life and the way I lead. His probing questions and insight into shame and vulnerability have drawn me out and into a more connected way of life. It is because of Kurt I now do everything in teams and I will never go back. Dr. Kurt Thompson is the visionary leader of the Center for Being Known, a nonprofit organization uniting people in what Thompson calls confessional communities. He speaks often at Biola University, many Christian conferences and churches, and has been a guest speaker on podcasts such as the Trinity Forum, Red Ink Revival, Pure Desire Ministries, Faithful and True, and many others, where he talks about the soul, shame, desire, and being known. The reason I have spent months researching him and listening to his teachings is to not only understand what he teaches, but grasp the presupposition and worldview that is undergirding it. I want to show you how Dr. Kurt Thompson claims that neurobiological data makes certain truth claims, in this case that man desires goodness and beauty, and combines that with what he believes the narrative of scripture is saying. Thompson's teaching of the gospel, that God created humanity good, but evil comes in to destroy through shaming us and causing us to doubt that we are good. God simply desires a deep relationship with us, for us to know and be known by God, and to know that even in our sins, dirt, and quagmires of our shame, God is well pleased and is delighted that we are his children. In the last two episodes, we examined Thompson's teaching on the fall, sin, Jesus, the cross, and the gospel. I exposed how Thompson psychoanalyzed the fall, making the root of Eve's problem shame and doubt of her lack of being sufficient for a relationship with God. She eats the fruit because the servant has tempted her to doubt that God is well-pleased with her, and so she exchanged the relationship with God with the need to, quote, forever working to obtain and hoard enough so that she will eventually be enough, End quote. Anatomy of the Soul, page 215. Now, if you have a view of the fall and man's problem in which evil is equated not with our sin, but with our shame, you will have a different salvation. One that doesn't save us from our selfish desires and our sins against the Holy God, but one that saves us from shame and disconnection. From God. This then leads to a different purpose for Christ's coming, one that does not redeem us from sin but from shame. And like Thompson teaches, to be set free from shame leads us to live more integrated lives, integrated in the brain individually and integrated in community. So Jesus comes to be the one that scorns shame and is our example of living as one fully known by God. The cross then becomes the ultimate display of evil trying to enter through Jesus' death by throwing the most shameful display of crucifixion at Jesus. And Jesus conquers shame by ignoring it and trusting in God's great pleasure in him. God at the cross is saying no to evil and yes to new life. Because of this, the gospel becomes the good news that, quote, "...in Jesus' death and resurrection..." He extinguished the power of fear and shame, death, and ushered in a newly created order of justice and mercy, that it is not all about meeting the right behavioral standards. Rather, the gospel is the declaration of the reality of relationship, a declaration that we are to be known, that the physical world is to be known, that God is to be known, End quote. Anatomy of the Soul, page 221. This is a different gospel than what we see in scripture. It literally makes the blessing of true shame, a feeling that results from sinning against a holy God, a warning sign that should make us go to Christ. It makes it an evil and something to be eradicated, when in reality and scripturally, it is our sin that needs to be atoned or paid for. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. By Thompson's account, Christ's death conquered over fear and shame, and by his resurrection, he wins us the power to integrate our prefrontal cortices, to become self-aware or mindful to conquer shame and point us to the new heavens and new earth. This is how we will create goodness and beauty, not through obeying God's law, but by being known in community, culminating in the regeneration of the mind and the redemption of the world. That is what we're going to look at in this episode—what Thompson means by regeneration and redemption and how that is accomplished. Scripture talks about regeneration, redemption, and spiritual life—what we would call sanctification. The question is, are these things our work or God's work? And how are they accomplished? By our work of integrating our prefrontal cortices? By entering into confessional communities? By becoming mindful and being fully mentalized by God? If that is the case, then how does one accomplish this? So let's dive in. Let's look at what Thompson teaches about regeneration, redemption, and how one is sanctified, or as Thompson calls it, spiritually formed or transformed. And let's compare it to scripture. Okay, so let's do a little defining of terms here before we look at what Dr. Kurt Thompson has to say about regeneration and redemption. What are these things and who does them? Let's look at scripture. In Titus three five, Paul tells us that God saves us by the washing of regeneration. He saves us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It is a work of God who puts a new heart and new spirit within us, Ezekiel thirty six twenty six. It is being born again, as Jesus spoke of, born of the Spirit, born of God, through the living and abiding Word of God. 1 Peter 1.23, John 3.1-36, 1, 1 John 3.9. There are many passages throughout Scripture that describe the work of God in regeneration. Listen to John MacArthur talk about this doctrine that is just so beautiful for the Christian.
3: The doctrine of regeneration. The doctrine of regeneration. <laughs> The work of God that makes believing possible, the work of God that makes repentance possible is regeneration. We're born in darkness, blindness, ignorance, inescapable sin. We have to be made alive. You go back to John chapter 3, very familiar portion, you might want to look at it for just a moment, it is such an, an interesting conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, by the way, is one of the people described in the second chapter, one of those people uh, that Jesus knew was not really entrusting Himself to Him, but He was um, believing in a superficial way, Nicodemus. But He comes to the Lord and he, He has a question on His heart different than the one on His lips. He wants to know how to be born again how to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God.'" Nicodemus said, "'How can a man be born when he's old?' He's not talking in physical terms. He gets the metaphor how is that possible to enter the kingdom of God. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Can Can he?" That's maybe sarcastic. And Jesus' answer is so amazing. How can a man be born again? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. You haven't seen an answer yet to the question, how? In verse 8 it says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. Do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit." What a strange answer. Where's the pray these words? Repeat after me. (laughs) Jesus says to Nicodemus, that's the Spirit's work, and He does it to whom He will, when He will. Back to chapter 17, the gift is eternal life, verse 2 that He may give eternal life, and this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom You have sent. Eternal life is not just a future reality, it is a present one. And what is it to have eternal life? It is to know God and to know Christ. I wish I had time to expand on that. It is to come out of death and darkness and ignorance and alienation and blindness into life and light. It is to move, as Paul would put it from being a natural man who understands not the things of God to someone who has the mind of Christ. In chapter 10, Jesus said, My, uh, my sheep know My voice, I know them. And then down in verse 14 He says, They know Me. They know Me. Well, what is it to be regenerated? It is all of a sudden to come out of death and darkness and ignorance and to know God and to know Christ in a true knowledge.
4: So we can understand that regeneration is not our work, as we are incapable of being born again, but is God's work in us. But what about redemption? Isn't that something we participate in? Here's a clip from Got Questions explaining what redemption is.
2: is the meaning of Christian redemption. We're going to answer that question. You can also discover more on gotquestions.org. Everyone is in need of redemption. Our natural condition was characterized by guilt. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christ's redemption has freed us from guilt, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The benefits of redemption include eternal life, forgiveness of sins, righteousness, freedom from the law's curse, adoption into God's family, deliverance from sin's bondage, peace with God, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. To be redeemed then is to be forgiven, holy, justified, free, adopted, and reconciled. The word redeem means to buy out. The term was used specifically in reference to the purchase of a slave's freedom. The application of this term to Christ's death on the cross is quite telling. If we are redeemed, then our prior condition was one of slavery. God has purchased our freedom, and we are no longer in bondage to sin or to the Old Testament law. Related to the Christian concept of redemption is the word ransom. Jesus paid the price for our release from sin and its punishment. His death was an exchange for our life. In fact, Scripture is quite clear that redemption is only possible through His blood that is, by his death. The streets of heaven will be filled with former captives who, through no merit of their own, find themselves redeemed, forgiven, and free. Slaves to sin have become saints. No wonder we will sing a new song, a song of praise to the Redeemer who was slain. We were slaves to sin, condemned to eternal separation from God. Jesus paid the price to redeem us, resulting in our freedom from slavery to sin. And our rescue from the eternal consequences of that sin.
4: So, as you can see, redemption is a transaction, an amazing transaction in which we have no participation in except to be that which is purchased. Our involvement in redemption is faith, trusting in the payment made by Jesus to the Father for our purchase into his family. Both regeneration and redemption are incredible truths that are stumbling blocks to many. The unbelievable truth that the work of salvation and all it entails from beginning to end is God's work. Our flesh wishes to glorify ourselves in this work somehow, to find a way to boast somehow in the participation of such a marvelous salvation. As a Christian psychiatrist who studies neurobiology, where does regeneration and redemption fit in for Dr. Thompson? To Thompson, we participate in regeneration through the renewing of our minds, through brain integration, in two ways. One, in acts of confession and repentance during the process of being known in community, and two, through spiritual disciplines, such as centering prayer. From the beginning of his book, Thompson states, quote, I want to help you understand how God can work through your mind to transform you, end quote. Anatomy of the Soul, page 28. That transformation happens through regeneration of neural pathways in the brain, pathways developed during the process of being known. Because Thompson believes, quote, the integration of the left and right systems is required to experience being known by someone else, end quote. Anatomy of the Soul, page 37. Thompson's whole ministry of transformation is helping people integrate their brains by being known by God through being known by others. And, quote, to be known means that you allow your shame and guilt to be exposed in order for them to be healed, end quote. Anatomy of the Soul, page 23. His organization, the Center for Being Known, does just that by hosting conferences and workshops that bring people into what he calls confessional communities that are hosted online and in person. He believes that through these communities and through the confession, In a group setting where people will not leave or judge you, you can rewire your brain by integrating both hemispheres of the brain. Honestly, these confessional communities sound an awful lot like churches. Small congregations of people sharing their burdens and sins. It's minus God's word and means baptism, worship, and communion. Yet it's touted as a place of transformation under God in bringing about healing. And that's something we need to think about does our guilt and shame need to be healed? He talks about guilt and shame as if these are wound instead of being outcomes of an offense. Like, here's an example. One who goes to court for stealing from another is found guilty and then sent to a doctor to be healed of that guilt. Instead of being given punishment and justice to pay for the offense, the offender is to be healed. This is not biblical and will not satisfy the wrath of God. It will not truly remove our problem, our sin, which brings the feeling of guilt and shame. Now, Thompson mentions sin in his book and believes neuroscience can help us turn from it. In fact, he believes that the more we pay attention to our minds, the more we heal or integrate our mind, which to him is what he describes as regeneration. And to Dr. Thompson, regeneration of the mind is what Paul means
5: by renewing the mind. Neuroscience also has something to tell us about turning away from sin. When we pay attention to our minds, we can begin to stop the disintegration and embrace the acts of confession and repentance that lead to redemption. No wonder then that Paul links regeneration with the healing or integration of the mind. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Romans 12:1 and 2. While sin reflects disintegration, mindful integration is an important function of redemption. In fact, The creative and integrative activity of the spirit is reflected by the integration of the prefrontal cortex through the stimulation of neural activation and growth, acronym SNAG, which creates new life in the form of new neural networks. Anatomy of the Soul, page 184.
4: Let's look at this passage in scripture because in this quote, Thompson is equating the biblical idea of renewal of the mind with mindful integration which he claims will bring healing, which he says is linked with regeneration. By doing this, he's implying that the spirit works in the life of a person through the creation of new neural pathways, neural pathways that heal the mind. We need to assess whether or not this verse is talking about a physical change in the brain and if Paul is linking regeneration with healing. So just a little background into this passage. Paul had, in chapter 11, finished mentioning the great grace given to Gentiles during the hardening of Israel's heart. That just as one time we, the Gentiles, were disobedient to God, so they too have been disobedient so that by the mercy shown to us, they might receive mercy. Verse 30. God's great mercy to those who are disobedient is a background to what he will say in chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, first off, let's note that it is because of the mercies of God that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. The motivation to renew the mind and not be conformed to the world comes from what God has done through Jesus Christ in purchasing us through redemption for himself. Now, what does that mind renewal look like? Well, Paul tells us, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. See, in doing what is laid out here for us through the Apostle Paul, the Spirit is showing us what it means to renew our mind by not thinking too highly of ourselves, to put others before ourselves, and to exercise the gifts given to us by God for the building up of God's people. And not just to love our brothers in this way, but also to love our enemies in this way. This is the outworking of the new heart which obeys God's law, to love God and to love neighbor because of Christ. In scriptural language, we put on the new man, a new man given as a gift in Christ Jesus, a new man who is clothed in Christ's righteousness. So the renewal of the mind in this context is to change the way we think, to align our thinking with God's word, beginning with what we think about ourselves to what we think about others to what we think about our enemies. Thompson, too, talks about what it means to put on the new man. Thompson teaches that not only will embracing acts of confession in these communities lead to redemption, they give us opportunity to put on the new self, as described in Colossians 3.10. That confession allows us to put on the new self by paying attention to representations in the mind of God's great love overall.
5: Confession turns our attention to those old pathways. We become more consistently mindful of them when they are activated. In this way, confession makes us aware of our old brain, old self, giving us the opportunity to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator, Colossians 3.10. Putting on the new self means paying attention to representations within the mind, mental models, attentive shifts to emotion and memory, etc., that reflect God's relentless, loving pursuit of women and men, and by extension, the rest of the universe. Anatomy of the Soul, page 229.
4: So is this true? Is putting on the new self paying attention to, quote, reflections in the mind that reflect God's relentless, loving pursuit of women and men, and by extension, the rest of the universe, end quote? This certainly sounds very enlightening and God-centered. Let's look at what Paul actually says in Colossians 3, starting in verse 1 and reading to verse 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you—sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away—anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So notice that the Spirit's instructions here is not merely one of attention or bringing one's attention to God's great love, but is an actual act that reflects what is inside the man. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, forgiveness, and above all, love. It's letting the peace of Christ and His Word rule in our hearts and dwell in us richly. This is a placing of God's Word within our minds, and through it, living and giving thanks to God the Father. All of this is what it means to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. The desires of the new man come forth from a knowledge of who God is and what he's done. To Thompson, regeneration involves the mind and is accomplished through the brain integration that happens by being known during confession and repentance in communities. It is not an act of God whereby he gives a new heart that is able to trust in Christ and depend on his work and word. Now, Thompson is using the scientific term here for regeneration, which means the action or process of regenerating or being regenerated, in particular, the formation of new animal or plant tissue. By this, he means that the brain is being regenerated through the creation of new neural pathways. And this is true. We can rightly understand that the new heart given to us by God will cause us to change our minds and will have certain physiological effects there's still a problem with this. Regeneration is the goal instead of the starting point, And that goal connects with redemption. And that's a huge problem. It makes regeneration and redemption our work. Remember what he stated that, quote, when we pay attention to our minds, we can begin to stop the disintegration, end quote. And in Thompson's teachings, sin reflects is, in essence, the outward working of disintegration. Sin is the result of mindlessness, of a brain that is not using both hemispheres. When we pay attention to our minds, we then can, quote, embrace the acts of confession and repentance that lead to redemption, end quote. Anatomy of the Soul, page 184. Ultimately, we need neuroscience to help us see where sin comes from and help us redeem not only ourselves, but the world.
5: Neuroscience, as we've seen, helps us recognize that sin results from not paying close enough attention to the varying experiences of our mind as mediated by the reptilian, limbic, and cortical portions of our brains, those parts of our souls by which God's voice is mediated. This leads us to act relatively impulsefully, unreflectively, and, perhaps most important, in isolation. Redemption, on the other hand, is mindfulness in action on both a cosmic and a personal level. Anatomy of the Soul, page 205.
4: And this is his argument. This is what he teaches throughout this book, that sin is the result of not paying close attention to God's voice through our brains, which can only be accessed through integration. It is not a result of suppressing the truth about God as revealed to us through nature and his word. It's not about wishing to be our own God. Redemption is, therefore, about mindfulness, not deliverance from sin and the consequence of offending a just God. Now, we've looked at what redemption means. Let's also look at how we are redeemed and compare it to Thompson's claim. Because if redemption is mindfulness in action, then how we are redeemed is through conducting mindful acts. Remember that we are redeemed from, one, our guilt of our sins, two, the ultimate defects of our body and soul— in the resurrection, and three, released or redeemed from the ongoing power of sin now. But how did that happen? Let's see what scripture says about how we are redeemed. I will let John MacArthur explain how believers are redeemed. I have shortened the video for time's sake, but the full video is provided in the show notes.
3: Salvation is by grace and not by works, and that grace was made possible by the substitutionary death of Christ who took our place and received our punishment. So Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse 18, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile or empty way of life inherited from your fathers. You were redeemed rather with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Then in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Verse 24, He bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Just to make that point very clear to all of you, false religion demands the sinner earn back a right standing with the deity. That is all false religion. That is why we say there is only one true religion. One true God, one true Savior, and one true gospel. In Hebrews 9.15, He is, that is Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The elect will receive glorification the the eternal inheritance, because of the redemption, the death that covered all their transgressions.
4: Did you notice the difference there? Redemption is about being bought by Christ through his blood to do the work God calls us to through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is accomplished through the sacrifice and work of Christ, not through mindfulness in action. This type of teaching is a heavy burden, as we as individuals will need to work to regenerate our brains so that we can build goodness and beauty in the world, bringing redemption to it. To Thompson, the data from neuroscience will help us and tell us what to do to create that regeneration within the brain. Not only does neuroscience tell us we need to be known, but it tells us that the implementation of spiritual disciplines can bring regeneration. While the Thompson regeneration is a brain issue, one where new neural pathways are grown, the scriptural view of regeneration is a heart issue. Yes, it does affect our thoughts, but at its core, it is a heart change, a desire change. The desire or heart now has the law of God written on it, Jeremiah 31-34 and Hebrews 10-16-17. As a psychiatrist, Thompson's goal is to help you change the way you think, to change the way your body reacts to certain thoughts and situations, and as you will see in a bit, Thompson teaches that spiritual disciplines are how one regenerates the brain. You heard an example of this in the intro clip. The purpose for meditation, or what others call centering prayer, as a discipline or technique He encourages people to use to transform what may be an anxious situation into a calming, peaceful one where we can be in the presence of God. The goal is to change the way one feels through meditation, to use meditation to regenerate your physical brain. This will cause you to feel different. The more you meditate, the more your future anxious situations become peaceful situations. The focus is on self-awareness and the state of how one feels. Now, scripture talks a lot about feelings, but those feelings are guided or changed by truth. When Jesus addresses such feelings as worry or anxiety, he draws our attention not to the feeling or to the mindfulness through centering prayer, but points us to God's care and creation, to truth. Matthew 6:25 to 34. Especially the truth about who God is. He exposes the heart issue, the desire to have things our way instead of the complete reliance on God. Thompson's idea of regeneration does not address the heart issue, does not change the desires of the flesh, but instead satisfies the desire for our own comfort through correcting feelings. causes us to strive after a constant state of peace from which we act, instead of striving to walk in the spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, Romans 8, 13. Walking in the spirit starts with the desire within the heart to obey the law, to be holy as God is holy, to love God and love neighbor. Thompson directs one to change their neural pathways to bring comfort to self. Scripture directs one to change one's allegiance from self to God. There are stark differences between brain regeneration as Thompson describes and heart regeneration as scripture describes question is which one leads to christian sanctification or what thompson would call transformation for thompson transformation lasting change takes place when we rewire our brains and not only will transformation occur but the rewiring of our brain can point us to what god is up to
1: have you
5: ever wondered if when people begin to follow jesus they really experience the change he promised and if so How does it happen, and what role, if any, does the individual play? Does this sound like a distant rumbling of what you have heard echoed before, that God is a God who changes us? Of course, we have stock theological answers like, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit, or he does it by grace, and that's a mystery. Great! While there certainly is truth in these statements, giving a theological answer to someone's agony over his or her failed attempts to overcome a pornography addiction or forgive an abusive parent usually produces only guilt. People's anxiety over their finances or their singleness doesn't respond easily to Paul's admonition to not be anxious about anything, but in every situation present your request to God. Philippians 4.6 When we hear that, most of us become even more anxious because we're not very good at not being anxious. But what happens when we consider that we can change the way our brains are wired? Perhaps he can point us to what God is up to when he invites us to love him and give us hope that the tools he's built inside each one of us can help us move towards lasting change. Anatomy of the Soul, page
4: 47-48. I find some parts of this quote quite telling. Thompson makes a point to say that because theological answers what we believe about God and His works, don't always help people overcome their flesh. We should look to other things, such as neuroscience, to help people stop sinning. His example, to simply telling someone not to be anxious, as Paul does in Scripture, is not enough. Of course it's not enough. This is the law. The only power the law has, and it is a good power, is to point us where we sin, Romans 3.20. That was one of its purposes, to point us to our need and the solution to that need, which is not to change the way our brains are wired, but to grab hold of faith in Christ. And I don't mean faith in Jesus as in faith that he showed us how to live, how to rewire our brains and be fully human. No, I mean a faith in a finished work, accomplished by God himself, a work that I could not and cannot accomplish. As someone said, I just can't remember who, We are saved by works. They are just not our work, but Christ's. Now, logically, if the work is not finished, and the work in regeneration and redemption is one we participate in, the question then is, well, how do we do this? What are the techniques or things that I accomplish to regenerate my brain? Thompson believes that neuroscience points us to tools that God has built inside each one of us to help us move towards lasting change. What are these tools that neuroscience points us to? Spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines help us rewire or integrate our brains and allow us to hear God. Listen to this quote where Thompson describes the purpose for spiritual disciplines.
5: couple of caveats to consider. First, we don't earn brownie points with God for engaging in spiritual disciplines. They're valuable because they line us up to be more available to hear the Spirit of God when He speaks. They create space within us for God to work. He is more than willing to do this work, but not without our cooperation. Second, engaging in spiritual disciplines simply for the sake of becoming more mindful is not the equivalent of having the mind of Christ. Plenty of people who are drawn to the idea of mindfulness will not necessarily like the idea of a king who demands their uncompromising allegiance. And Paul is quite specific about what followers of Jesus are to pay attention to and how to do that. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind controls the sinful nature in death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Romans 8, 5 and 6 The degree to which we set our minds on, pay attention to, those desires of the sinful nature tend to disintegrate our minds by encouraging a state of mindlessness. One, if not the, primal sinful desire is the urge for instant reduction of distressing emotions. We tend to turn away from unpleasant emotional states toward inner or outer mental or behavioral means that will disconnect us from or eliminate those very states. When we do this, we pay less attention to what is happening in our minds. We then tend to respond to internal or external events with sinful thoughts and behaviors. When our minds are set on these things, it does not lead to death. According to Paul, it is death. Death is that state of disintegration, disconnection, and isolation that leads to everything that is wrong in the universe. And according to Paul, you don't have to be without a pulse to be dead. All of the spiritual disciplines both require and support the skill of mindful attention, which enables us to set our minds on the spirit. When we pay attention to what we are paying attention to, And when God's voice, telling us we are his sons and daughters, whom he loves and in whom he takes great pleasure, is the most resonant tone to which we are listening, our minds, specifically the prefrontal cortex, tend to be more integrated. Anatomy of the Soul, page 178.
4: Quote, The degree to which we set our minds on, or pay attention to, those desires of the sinful nature, tends to disintegrate our minds by encouraging a state of mindlessness. One, if not the, primal sinful desire is the urge for instant reduction of distressing emotions. We tend to turn away from unpleasant emotional states towards inner or outer mental or behavioral means that will disconnect us from or eliminate those very states. End quote. Here he makes the nature of sin one against our emotional states, basically what I would call emotional cowardice. Because we turn from unpleasant emotional states, we end up sinning in behavior. To Thompson, the problem is the turning away from unpleasant emotional states. To walk in the spirit is to pay attention to these emotional states so we do not walk in the sinful nature. There may be a grain of truth in being self-aware in this way. I certainly am not saying to ignore your emotional states, but just coming to the awareness of the emotional state and then telling ourselves that God loves us doesn't get at the root of the emotional state to begin with, nor deal with the emotional cowardice, as I call it, in dealing with that state. But what is the root cause of emotional cowardice? The desire to love and protect oneself. The primal sinful desire is not the urge for instant reduction of distressing emotions. It's not that we are reluctant or turn away from these states. Our problem is our desire to be God, to either worship ourselves or anything other than Him. It was the desire that brought about the fall and the desire that still remains. It is the desire to not obey His law. It is a transgression against the first and second commandment. To love God is to serve and obey only Him. Our sinful desire at its root is the desire to love ourselves, serve ourselves, worship, and obey ourselves. We will do anything to do that, even create a false god who is like ourself for creation, because our glory is our ultimate goal, not God's glory. But the quote continues.
5: So what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? Paul discusses this in his first letter to the church at Corinth, in which he identifies the Spirit as the one who can impart the power and mystery of God to us.
4: Here he will point to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 10 to 11 and 15 and 16. Before we go into how Thompson connects the mind of Christ with spiritual disciplines, let's look at the whole passage. Let's see if we can, from Scripture itself, see what it means by it, and if it might tell us how to have it. We'll start at verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So I'm going to stop here. So we see first that Paul distinguishes the wisdom of God from the wisdom of man, and the wisdom of God is connected to Christ. Because if the rulers of that age had known this wisdom, they would not have crucified Christ. Back to the text. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God, Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Now, the purpose for being given the spirit is to understand what we have been given, what God has given us. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Note that this verse is missing from Thompson's quote because it's basically saying that this wisdom given by the Spirit is to help us understand the things given to us by God. They are parted to us in words not received in a spiritual experience, but a word that comes from we. Who is the we here? The apostles. Now, how do we know this? Because of verse 1 to 5, it's Paul who's proclaiming the testimony of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Basically, you want the mind of Christ, ladies? We find it in the words imparted to us in Scripture. Notice that it doesn't say anything about performing a spiritual discipline to receive an impartation. If that was what Paul meant, why didn't he include it? But let's see what Thompson says about what the passage is saying and what the mind of Christ has to do with spiritual disciplines.
5: To have the mind of Christ requires that we encounter an integrating spirit who searches us and allows us to know him as we are searched, as we are known. God longs for us to pay attention to that Spirit who is dwelling within us. Anything that we do to strengthen our capacity to do this will be helpful. Submitting to the spiritual disciplines is one way to put ourselves in the position to hear His voice. He may, in fact, call us to places we may at first be very much afraid to go. Spiritual disciplines have been practiced in the lives of deeply integrated followers of God for over 3,000 years. Interestingly, They can facilitate the very things neuroscience and attachment research suggest are reflections of healthy mental states and secure attachments. Therefore, these disciplines can strengthen the nine functions of the prefrontal cortex. In short, the disciplines enable us to pay attention to our minds in order to pay attention to the spirit who is speaking to us through that very medium. Jesus' mind, I suggest, reflects the most integrated prefrontal cortex of any human of any time. His deep awareness of God did not happen automatically. In fact, no one has ever worked harder at knowing and being known by God than Jesus. He made himself available through the same spiritual disciplines we have at our disposal and committed himself to being known by God so he might know the mind of God. In other words, he paid attention to what he was paying attention to. Anatomy of the Soul, page 179-180
4: To Thompson, to have the mind of Christ is to, quote, encounter an integrating spirit who searches us and allows us to know him as we are searched, as we are known, end quote. That is the purpose for spiritual disciplines, to be known by God so we might know the mind of God, to pay attention to what we are paying attention to. Now let's examine this. Let's look at just one of the disciplines, the one Thompson most talks about, centering prayer or meditation. And I'm going to play for you from Thompson's very website what he calls Reflections. These are activities one performs to bring one to attention or mindfulness. On his website, reflections are said to, quote, assist you in telling your story more truly, the story of goodness and beauty that God is narrating and longs for each of us to hear and occupy. The exercises presented here are to help you focus your attention, provide you an encounter with beauty, and develop a curiosity of what it evokes in you, all free from the distractions we so easily fall into, end quote. One starts by selecting from a drop box what one feels at that moment. Once you have identified your emotional state, you are instructed to, quote, choose a reflection resource from our collection of art, music, prose, poetry, and meditations. The purpose of selecting an emotion is to draw your attention to what you are feeling, to practice strengthening your awareness of the emotional state of mind that you bring to the reflection, not merely to understand or resolve it. The reflection you encounter, in turn, will provide the opportunity for you to attune to the shifts not only in what you feel, but also what you sense, image, think, and are moved to do in your body." On the page, you may select from an assortment of links which you can either observe read or listen to. Now I've chosen a read link that brings us to a verse in Scripture, Luke 3:22. Interestingly, there is no verse to read, just the address and this sentence. Quote, "To begin your reflection and a genuine encounter with yourself, simply follow the steps below End quote. So this should be interesting. Let's think about how he's using Scripture here to help us reflect. Here is step one.
0: Step one. Now that you have identified the emotional state you find yourself in, choose a reflection resource from our collection of art, music, prose, poetry, and meditations. As you view, listen to, read, or practice what is offered, I invite you to progressively and closely attune to what you sense, image, feel, think, and how you are moved to behave. You can recall these activities of the mind via the acronym SIFT-B. These five features are a simplified summary of what your mind is continually doing as you tell your story by living it. Attuning to them enables you to attain a clearer awareness of where you are and provides flexibility to shift your attention to where you want to be. You can wrap up the reflection here, having refocused your attention in a way that has been helpful or move on to the next steps. Let me invite you to allow your body to find a relaxed posture, sitting or lying on your back. Now I want to invite you to allow your eyes to close and to slowly, intentionally take two deep breaths. Next, I want to invite you to allow the focus of your attention to shift to your awareness of the room in which you find yourself. Now, I want to invite you to allow the focus of your attention to shift to your awareness of yourself, sitting or lying where you are. Be aware of your posture, of how you are positioned. Notice if you are relaxed, and if not, where tension exists in your body. Examining your body in your mind, beginning in your feet, and working your way to your head. As you are able, allow any tension that you sense to be released. And now, I want to invite you to allow the focus of your attention to shift To your awareness of your breath. You may find it at the opening of your nostrils, in the back of your throat, or deep within your lungs. Be aware of the movement of your breath. And now I want to invite you to maintain the focus of your attention on your breath itself as it moves. You may realize that your attention may wander, and it is normal for it to do so. And when you recognize that your attention has wandered away from your breath, simply and without judgment, redirect your attention to your breath, remaining there for the next few moments. And now I want to invite you to allow the focus of your attention to shift to a different space, a new space, a space of your choosing, one of strength and beauty. It may be a place that you are familiar with or one that is completely novel. It may be inside or outside. It can be in a meadow, a mountain, near a body of water or in a desert, or it may be your favorite chair in your home. It may take some time for you to arrive in this new space, but once you do, I invite you to allow yourself to take some time and observe this space of beauty and strength that you now occupy. Notice the colors. Notice what you hear. Notice any aromas. Be aware of the ambient air temperature notice if you are standing or seated if you are outside be aware of any movement of the wind and now i invite you to allow for the presence of god to join you and god will come as he will perhaps from behind you or from beside you or in front of you and now i invite you to notice god noticing you be aware of his regard for you notice his gaze as he looks at you with intention and kindness and joy. And now hear your God say this, you are my son, you are my daughter. I love you so much. I could not be more pleased that you are on the earth. I cannot believe that I get to be your father and your God. You are my delight. And no one, no one takes you out of my hand. I could not be more proud of you. It gives me such great and lasting pleasure to be in your presence. You are my daughter whom I love. You are my son whom I love. And in whom I am so very well pleased. And now I invite you to allow the focus of your attention to remain attuned to God being attuned and attentive to you. I invite you to allow the focus of your attention to remain attuned to your awareness of what you feel, what you sense. Remain attuned to seeing God seeing you. And now I invite you to allow for the presence of God to move, to move out of your sight line, but never to leave you alone. I now invite you to once again observe the beauty and strength of the space you occupy, as well as the depth of what it is that you sense and feel as you remain in this space. And now I invite you to begin the process of returning from this space of strength and beauty to the space that you previously occupied. I invite you to allow the focus of your attention to once again gradually shift to your awareness of your body in the room in which you sit or lie. I also invite you to bring to memory those images, feelings, and sensations that you experienced in that place of strength and beauty, permitting them to accompany you as you return to this room. I invite you to recall the words that you heard in the presence of God that you experienced there. And now, when you are ready, but not before, I invite you to allow your eyes to open, returning to the space in this room Awake, alert, and attuned, bringing with you that strength and beauty, again, when you are ready and not before.
4: Now I sped up the audio for time's sake, but he speaks in a very monotone voice and very slowly. The original audio was almost nine minutes long. After listening to this, we are instructed to ask ourselves questions and reflect on how we felt how our body reacted, questions that centered around the acronym SIFT-B, what we sense, image, feel, think, and how we are moved to behave. Did you notice anything about scripture or Luke 3.22 at all? What is that verse? If you listen to the previous episode where I dive into what Thompson believes about Jesus, the cross, and the gospel, you'll get the connection. To Thompson, Luke 3.22 is essentially the gospel. It is what Jesus lived by. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Luke three twenty-one to 22. We are to know that in the same way that God was pleased with Jesus, he's pleased with us. Jesus was acutely aware of God's affection, and from this awareness, he acted. In the last episode, I quoted him stating this from his book, Jesus increased in his awareness of God's pleasure. He did not simply grow in what he knew about God, but in his felt awareness of God's pleasure with him, God's joy in Jesus' presence. Jesus' life was a living, breathing, fearless response to his experience of a God who continuously pays attention to his creation and takes great joy in its presence. End quote. Anatomy of the Soul, page 144. See the connection with performing this type of meditation or reflection? See its message? The consequences of this teaching for a person who hasn't grasped the truth of sin and their depravity will lead them to believe a false gospel. And teachings like these permeate women's ministry and are something Jenny Allen supports as useful in discipleship and are one of the means by which God changes the world. For Thompson's spiritual disciplines help us in regeneration. Through the formation of new neural pathways of the brain, which will ultimately cause us to create the goodness and beauty that will bring about redemption of humanity and all the world. Before I get to my conclusion for this episode and for our analysis on Dr. Kurt Thompson's ministry, I want to give you one final quote. It should come as no surprise that if our regeneration, redemption, transformation, or in essence our salvation, is a work of ours, tied to a belief that God is just so greatly pleased with us, then the lines that separate us, namely the doctrines that divide religions, are meaningless. The peace that comes through the belief that God is pleased with all is the uniting factor. In the epilogue of Anatomy of the Soul, Thompson goes into how interpersonal neurobiology can be integrated into certain spheres of life. He asserts that interpersonal bi- neurobiology gives us a bridge to peace in religious diversity.
5: Religious diversity and peacemaking. I include these subjects together because it is often the way we live out our diversity among one another that most exemplifies our skill at peacemaking, religious or otherwise. Whether we are speaking about denominational separation within the Christian church or larger diverse religious groups, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and others, being mindful of the elements of interpersonal neurobiology enable us to interact with each other in more productive ways. As a follower of Jesus, I believe that history is traveling in a particular direction and that its culmination we will all submit to Him as Lord of Heaven and Earth. I believe that the best of all religious experience, explicitly Christian or not, will ultimately lead to Jesus, and salvation in every sense will come through a relationship with Him. How God brings this to pass is a mystery, and I have no doubt that some will want no part of the salvation offered. Anatomy of the Soul, page 264.
4: The only thing that separates us from being with God is whether we want that relationship or not. My Conclusion I hope that these episodes regarding Dr. Kurt Thompson gave you an insight into how one can come to scripture with a certain lens. What one believes about scripture, especially whether it is clear, sufficient, and inerrant, changes how one reads it and applies it to life. If we believe that we need more modern philosophy, science, or knowledge to make scripture relevant to us and others, we will incorporate man's observation with scripture. Let me make a clarification here, though. I am not against these things. I'm not against philosophy, science, and knowledge. What I am against is thinking that these things are untainted by our depravity. I'm against man being our starting point in interpreting our observations in these studies, instead of God's revealed word being the starting point. As Proverbs states that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the knowledge of Him is the beginning of understanding, Proverbs 9.10. God's word is to guide our understanding in what we observe in any study, especially when it comes to observation of God's creation of man. For if we don't actually believe what scripture says about man's sinful nature, our depravity, it really leads to a different gospel, one that glorifies man and not God, and a gospel that glorifies man always makes salvation our work. It's an interesting thing. To believe in a gospel that glorifies man. Where is our faith placed in a gospel like that? Who do we end up trusting? Who do we go to when suffering and trials come our way? Who is our advisor for the simple things such as parenting and marriage and spirituality? This gospel that glorifies and regenerates man through a relationship with God is meant to satisfy the self-esteem of an individual. It is a gospel that urges them to, in the great love and pleasure of God, go and do good works as they participate in the redemption of humanity. It is a faith rooted in self-love and the goodness found in man instead of the love and goodness found in God through the sacrifice of His Son for our sins. It calls people to implement the use of mystical spiritual disciplines, such as contemplative and centering prayer, meditation, to be known by God, and do good works in response to emotion and being felt, instead of simply doing good works in response to faith in the truth of God's Word. The truth that our good works spring forth from the work of God, not man, in regeneration, redemption, and sanctification. And seriously... When you realize that it's all God's work, and not only that, but it's really all finished in Christ, who is sufficient to give you as a gift, a righteousness that exceeds that of any Pharisee, you really are set free, because God is faithful. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words, and prevail when you are judged. Romans 3, 4 And because God is faithful and true, and because scripture is enough, I pray you are in his word. Ladies, if you are interested in the transcript for this episode, you can go to ttew.org. You can find other great resources, articles, blogs, and videos that may bless you in your Christian walk, as well as links to follow me on social media. If you wish to contact me, you can email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com. Again, the website address is ttew.org. Thoroughly Equipped is part of Striving for Eternity's Christian Podcast Community, Striving for Eternity is a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for eternity by assisting Christians to have an eternal perspective on life. They strive to bring evangelism, discipleship, apologetics, and Christian living together for the purpose of eternal preparation by exalting God, edifying and equipping the saints, and evangelizing the lost. They provide speakers, online articles, online courses, books, podcasts, and other theological resources, all centered on God's Word. To find out more, go to strivingforeternity.org. And to listen to other podcasts, go to podcast.strivingforeternity.org. I pray that their resources bless you as they have blessed me, as we live our lives day by day, praising and glorifying God.